0: Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the chiropractic research podcast series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all of the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback from every one of you. If you like listening to the podcast, please give a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors and students to listen to the best in chiropractic research. I read all of the feedback that I get and wanted to share one with you. It's from Dr. Michael Johnson from Richmond, Indiana, which is actually not far from me. He says, you want research? Here it is. Dr. Dean makes it easy to keep up on the latest research by interviewing the best and brightest in the field. I look forward to every episode. Well, thanks, Dr. Johnson, and thanks again to everyone for listening. Also, I've created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients that will be available soon on the chiropractic uh, website. Uh, the presentation provides snippets of educational information from the chiropractic and related literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016. So you can check out sample slides if you're interested in that on the Chiropractic Science website. As you know, my goals for producing these research interviews are, first, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research, second, to encourage collaboration of researchers, and third, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that chiropractic science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these uh, podcasts possible. Well, let's get on the interview today with uh, Dr. Andre Boussier. I am really excited that in this interview, we will discuss topics such as the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative, Research Utilization and Knowledge Translation in Chiropractic, as well as professional behavior change, which I think is a a crucial uh, thing to understand in our profession, as well as any other profession for that matter. Dr. Andre is an assistant professor at the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy and an associate member, Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health at McGill University. He is a professor in the chiropractic department at the uh, University of Quebec at Trois-Rivières He has clinical training in nursing from the University of Montreal and chiropractic at CMCC, and he's completed a master's degree in kinesiology and a PhD in population health from the University of Ottawa. He was in private practice between 1993 and 2007. He is a fellow of the College of Chiropractic Scientists of Canada and serves as an associate editor of the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, and BMC Health Service Research, and is an editorial board member of the Chiropractic and Manual Therapies Journal. He holds a Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation Professorship in Rehabilitation Epidemiology from McGill University and leads the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative. His research interest focuses on clinical practice guidelines development and uptake to improve patient care and health outcome, knowledge synthesis, implementation research, and professional behavior change. So Dr. Andre, it's uh, really an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really honored to be um, here and uh, looking forward to our discussion today. And thank you for this nice uh, introduction.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. So let's get on with uh, how you became interested in first becoming a nurse and subsequently becoming a chiropractor.
1: Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question I get asked from time to time. Uh, We had a very nice uh, family friend who was a registered nurse uh, in the emergency department and uh, recalled as a kid, you know, hearing those stories of patients they would see and and treat and manage, and I, I thought, yeah, but this is healthcare is definitely something I want to do. Although it wasn't that clear, um, but uh, but that was my first diploma at Montreal University, as you mentioned, and um, and then toward the end of the the final year, I was walking downtown Montreal. And it was this work and compensation board. Um, I guess they call it week of the, you know, health and security. And uh, and I just walked in, and and uh, there happened to be a chiropractor there that had a kiosk, and ran into him, and we started having a great discussion. And um, and then I thought, yep, this really sounds like what I want to study and learn more about. And so I contacted CMCC at the time, and was fortunate to get in, and uh, and then go through the chiropractic school. And then when we completed this program back in 1991, I thought, well, I really feel like I should know more and to learn more about, you know, the science of the profession. And um, so I started the full-time residency program and completed then the clinical science program at CMCC, which was, was just fantastic. You know, we would spend time uh, doing a bit of research, learning the core, um, you know, methodology and a bit of epidemiology, and we had, of course, some Um, assignment we had to do and and, uh, reviews of the literature and learning about, at the time I was into biomechanics and and neck pain, Um, but we also spent a great deal of time in hospitals and doing rotations and working with specialists in different areas, learning about neurosurgery and orthopedic and pediatrics and uh, neurology and even neuropathology, and, and I was just fascinated with you know learning all of this, and I felt so privileged of gaining this knowledge. And, and at the time, I really, as I said, started having an interest in research, although I did want to practice. So um, between 1993 and 2008, I was in full-time practice. Uh, after about 10 years in a multidisciplinary practice, I also had a second clinic going, and, um, and that was uh, south shore of Montreal. And then in 2002, I joined the UKTR as a full-time faculty member and uh, really wanted to get into more of a teaching and, and sharing some of the experience I had gained, I guess, over years and, and some of my training. Um, and, um, and then, well, had to more or less sell one of the practices for sure and became part-time for a little while. Um, and then after a couple of years, I like guess short attention span, I thought, okay, I need to go back to school. But it did take me so many years before I decided what it is I want to learn in terms of graduate schools. I had so many interests, and finally decided that it would be something around, um, you know, rehab, and and um, and so I got into doing between 2003, I believe, and and. Uh, 2008 uh, into guidelines because this was something that the school here at UQTR thought it was important, and the accreditation agency had asked that uh, a revision of the guideline on imaging spine imaging be completed, and so I was tasked with doing that. and And after we published this in 2008, it was a big, quite a big undertaking. There were 60 panelists um, worldwide, chiropractors and specialists that were involved. And I realized at the yeah, end, after publishing three of those into JMPT, there very few people who actually read those, that uh, they were so comprehensive, and, and although they I think, and they still are of good quality, although they should be revised, um, then I thought, okay, well, how do you actually get this implemented in practice? And that's really what got me interested in learning about knowledge translation and implementation science and i was fortunate to um, be accepted in the population health program in ottawa in 2008 and did my phd there and my thesis was on the implementation of clinical practice guidelines and so I'm fortunate to work with a group of Americans in a, a practice-based research network. And, and, uh, and some of my studies were there done there as well as others in Canada. But it was learning how, you know, what, what were the barriers for clinicians to be able to implement new information, all the challenges that they're facing. Um, you know, time, of course, is precious. They're seeing a lot of patients. They have lots of decisions to make every day. And, and so, how can we make things easier for them so that uh, they can reach good clinical decisions at the time where the patients need this information and you know, provide the right treatment, at the right time sort of thing? And so, a lot of my work now is around trying to translate information, make it more palatable for clinicians, but also for patients and decision makers.
0: Wow, that is uh, that's really great information. I'm I'm so excited to just keep going, and I have a a number of questions that I want to ask you over the next hour or so. And you you have published numerous publications in a variety of excellent peer reviewed journals. During this interview, we're going to discuss some of the what I think are the really important issues facing chiropractors today, and uh, and I'm just ecstatic to get your thoughts on on everything. So let's go ahead and get started. And the first thing that I want to talk about that you've uh, spent a lot of time on is the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative. So first, I just uh, for people that don't uh, maybe not live in Canada or have any familiarity with what that is, can, can you just give us an overview of, of the history of that and, and what exactly it is?
1: For sure. Well, you know, the very first guideline in chiropractic I'm aware of was the Mercy guideline that was headed by Scott Haldeman in the US in 1991. And subsequently to that, the Glen Heron conference, as it's referred, published the first Canadian chiropractic guideline in 1993. And um, leaders in a profession thought at the time that it was really important perhaps for clinicians, but also as a political instrument to be able to say to um, the other communities in healthcare that yes, chiropractic was looking at evidence to be able to inform clinical decision making. And so this was more or less formalized in 2004. It was then referred to the Guideline uh, Initiative. And between 2004 and 2012, when I took over the initiative, there were a number of guidelines that were produced. And off of my McGill uh, position, uh, I was uh, asked if I would uh, accept undertaking uh, this project and adding to this a uh, component that already was considered that at the time, uh, but I guess they lacked resources perhaps to implement this. And that was knowledge translation. So uh, the guideline initiative, uh, starting in 2012-2013, slightly changed the the mandate um, where, you know, the vision is still, of course, to enhance the health of Canadians by fostering excellence in chiropractic care. But our mission is now to develop evidence-informed clinical practice guidelines and best practice recommendation and to facilitate their dissemination and the implementation within the chiropractic profession. So to, um, you know, address this mission, we have uh, four strategies essentially that we're considering and working around. One of them is quite bold, and that's to transform the culture of the profession toward one that is guided by evidence-informed practice. This is not new to many of our colleagues, but perhaps to others it is. And there's an important shift um, in the way that we consider information to reach and uh, manage patients and that was uh, initiated off at uh, McMaster University over 35 years ago and and this uh way of thinking, if you like, kind of a framework, really, really got uh, great attention across the medical community at the time and became accepted as a standard very rapidly. The nurses uh, followed about 25 years ago and then roughly about 10, 15 years ago, uh, occupational therapists and physiotherapists have embarked into this evidence-based approach to making decisions, which really is quite simple, and that entails uh, looking at the best available information at the time I take a decision combined with my experience and expertise as a clinician but also the patient preference and values and we want Canadian chiropractors to think about this when they make decisions for patient care I'm quite pleased to to say that our stakeholders, those professional associations, the regulatory boards across Canada to support the guideline initiative have adopted a statement that we refer to as the evidence-informed statement. So the, the, the practice of chiropractic is informed by those elements I've mentioned, but also, of course, the context in which chiropractic is practiced. The second strategy that is important is to engage our stakeholders, and that's one example where we do that, to um, make sure that they're on board with the various strategies that uh, I'm going to talk about, Uh, because obviously they're quite important in helping their members also assimilate some of the information motivate them or give them incentives for them to learn more about these uh, so that the application of information is uh, goes directly to patient care. The third strategy is about producing good guidelines. Guidelines are robust, defensible, transparent, those that are informed by the best available evidence. And sometimes, evidence is not there. Uh, sometimes clinicians still needs to be ma- making of course decisions with their patients and so looking at the best practice is also important and recommendations that could be of use although the information might not be as good of quality at this time so we're also as an initiative interested in that and finally is to create and apply uh, initiatives that are uh, you know strategies within the knowledge translation area to influence chiropractic practice positively And that's to increase the uptake of the information that is available. And we all know this is challenging because there's so much information out there and it's, not always easy to determine which one is the good information which one I should use and how do I tailor this to my patients so this initiative is really um, you know around musculoskeletal condition in the scope of practice of what chiropractors do on a day-to-day basis looking at spinal condition extremity disorders headaches for example pediatric conditions and other areas such as assessment and treatment of common conditions seen by chiropractors
0: Wow, that's amazing. Uh, you know, one of the things that really perked my interest was when you said that chiropractors may not even know where to go to look for good quality information, or they may not know, uh, you know, what's, what's valid or reliable data to look at. And I think having uh, guidelines such as this are going to be an excellent way to point chiropractors to find the latest in chiropractic research and be able to implement that, you uh, into their practices, and, and that's uh, certainly uh, what we're gonna be talking about uh, next, uh, or coming up soon, are some of these strategies. So let's uh, dive in and, and talk about some, some of your research papers that address some of these issues. Uh, and the first one that I wanted to talk about was from the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association in 2015, December, and it was about self-reported attitudes, skills, and use of evidence-based practice among doctors of chiropractic. Can you tell us uh, about uh, how that study came about and and what you found?
1: Sure, so Matthew Leach, a researcher in Australia, had administered a large survey uh, to Australian practitioners and Mike Schneider and Ronnie Evans in the U.S. had um, tailored this instrument or the survey questionnaire to chiropractors in the U.S. And when we did the same things, and I'm very pleased to uh, say these are now co-authors in us on this publication. And and so you know we we found remarkably similar remarkable similarities between the uh, responses from chiropractors in the U.S. and chiropractors in Canada. But also in other health disciplines, uh, essentially clinicians have a positive attitude toward evidence based practice. They, they 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 get it. They seem to say, "Yep, this is something we uh, need and uh, we should embark on as a profession." They believe it's useful. They're interested in improving their skills about evidence practice or based practice. But many admitted that they about half you know the, the population or responded uh, indicate that they used um, evidence in information routinely or every day if you will to make clinical decision-making so to me actually this is you know it's like the glasses half full and half empty and uh, we have a number of other studies that we've conducted and other colleagues have conducted that reach more or less similar conclusions and so I, I think this is saying basically that our profession is really now at the edge of moving it's like shifting the needle slightly and when there's a group in a center, like a pyramid, where people are you know, embarking to this, that means all patients that are being seen by these people are going to benefit from the three elements I mentioned earlier when making clinical decisions, not just clinical experience, not just patient values and preferences, but also evidence and the most recent and applicable and reasonable information that can be used. So I think that's quite exciting information.
0: Yeah, and I think it also is exciting. What you said at the beginning of this section was that the uh, values or the reported attitudes and skills of Canadian chiropractors are very similar to chiropractors across the world. And uh, I think you mentioned other professions as well have similar attitudes. And, And I bet if we asked other professions, they would have difficulty in implementing research in their own respective fields as well. It, as you said, there are a lot of barriers to implementing, you know the, the best evidence into practice. And, and I can tell you that from my own personal perspective, I, I still am in practice, not full time, but um, I see patients essentially every day, just a, a, an hour or two each day. And I ha- end up having, you know, five questions at the end of every uh, session that I see people and it's difficult to answer those questions uh to be honest with you in a reasonable time period and and I'm into the literature you know I'm looking at the stuff pretty regularly so it it can be pretty daunting I think for practitioners to 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 really get into it and um that's why I really think that the the guidelines initiative and and the work that you're doing is so very important for uh for all of us
1: well, I was going to say you're right. You know, the, the, looking at PubMed, they have over 25 million citations. There have been over 1,000 randomized controlled trial conducted in low back pain alone. There's several randomized or systematic reviews and meta-analysis that have been conducted since uh, looking at those RCTs. Uh, it was mentioned, I believe, back in 2009, that in any medical specialty, one would require reading a couple of articles every day, 365 days a year, to try to keep up. And even that would be impossible. And and we know this is probably twice as many now, reading close to 50 papers a day, which is impossible. And so, uh, yeah, you're right. This is not restricted to one profession. This is a Daunting task for all healthcare disciplines, and and this is where guidelines become quite interesting because the way we look at information is we you know we synthesize available high quality RCTs for example after doing um, search strategies on specific keywords, and once we've identified those, we take the time to screen those and assess those for quality, and then we're producing those systematic reviews that essentially are summarizing the evidence on a very specific topic. And when we do a guideline, we're doing a number of systematic reviews. We're updating systematic reviews to be able to derive recommendations for clinical practice based on those. So it's like, uh, you know, additional level of refinement where clinicians that are so busy probably shouldn't be wasting too much time looking at the primary studies, meaning those randomized controlled trials to see if a treatment is better than another one. When there are systematic reviews or meta-analyses, they're available. Meta-analyses are simply fancy statistics that are done looking at similar type of RCTs. It's like an extension of a systematic review. And when those are available, that's where a clinician should go but if there's a guideline that is available that's a combination of several good systematic reviews to inform what clinicians could be doing for their patients and so that's the place to start and and so you know we're um very cognizant of those challenges and the guideline initiative has some um, um, openness website back in 2014 in english and uh, recently was um, now also available in french uh, and it's at www.chiroguidelineswithaness.org where we house all the guidelines but also uh, reviews and systematic reviews that are of, of interest or potential interest within the scope of chiropractic practice. We want to make things available easily for clinicians and we're hoping that across Canada and elsewhere these, this is where people are going to go for easy access to information um, where they can hopefully uh, inform their practice.
0: Very good. And I'll make sure to put a link on our website as well, uh, linking to the the website you just mentioned. Um, And one other thing I just wanted to quickly go through in case people aren't uh, familiar with systematic reviews or meta-analyses. Uh, the reason why these are so important is that they're at the top of the pyramid for evidence. And so we have uh, essentially at the bottom of the pyramid, um, you know, what an individual may say or a case study, you know, one single exposure. But uh, as we go up the pyramid, we get more people involved in studies, we get more evidence. And then these systematic reviews and meta-analyses are really at the height or the 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 top of the pyramid for evidence. So, I'm really glad uh, you went through that, and and I appreciate the the details that you spoke to there. One way to, I guess, look at all of the these guidelines and and uh, meta analyses and things is to say, okay, we we have all this information. It's really good information, and we spent a lot of time looking at it and deciphering all the statistical analyses, but that's all fine and good until we come to working with our patients. So the next uh, couple of things I want to talk with you about are are how we actually take that research and utilize it in the practice of chiropractic. So we're going to take that research from PubMed. We're going to Translate it into a guideline, or we're going to translate it into some usable form for chiropractors to use. And I'm going to I'm going to start off with a a paper that um, that you wrote here uh, very recently, and this is in BMC Complementary and Alternative Medicine, and the title. Uh, was evidence-based practice, research utilization, and knowledge translation in chiropractic a scoping review? And I, I found this pretty fascinating. If you could uh, tell the listeners what that paper was about and 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 what you found, that would be terrific. <laughs>
1: certainly. See, the difference between a scoping review and in a systematic review is um, essentially looking at the quality of the evidence, which systematic reviews always do. There's validated grid we use and to determine um, the quality of any of the papers that are included. In scoping reviews, what we try to do is rather to try to understand how much information exists on different topics, and whether those topics actually are informing or trying to summarize if you'd like um, not only what exists but also what's missing out there and this was important because it's like a baseline study it's one of the studies I must say I'm quite pleased with it took so it took a very long time for us to do this we included over 4,400 papers um, uh, you know, the initial search, but only retained 67 articles. Uh, the majority were published in Canada, in the US, and Australia, and the UK. So that is telling us where a lot of the research is being done right now in chiropractic within those three areas we mentioned: evidence-based practice, research utilization, and knowledge translation in chiropractic specifically. Um, similar work has been done in other professions, so it's interesting also to see how we fare uh, compared to others. A lot of surveys, a lot of Uh, interview types of studies have been done but not very many implementation studies studies where we look at the impact of a strategy on trying to improve clinical practice and patient health so there's a large gap there a lot of attention is still required um, and, and so, um, yeah, so essentially this is really a baseline information to say, okay, what has, what type of research has been done in those areas? What's missing? What can be done? And I, I'm hoping that for young researchers also that this is an area that, um, you know, type of paper they could look at and say, okay, that this is my area's research interest. And obviously there are gaps there. There are more research is needed in certain areas. Um, and we know that, for example, with an activity limitation, uh, or the assessment of activity limitation we need more work in uh, looking at psychological and so- social factors that influence pain for instance still needs to be uh, addressed general health indicators so what are those um, markers if you like of improvement in patient how to really establish a prognosis and prescribe exercise where people are going to be adhering to those prescription uh, requires further uh, investigation. And and similar to what we mentioned earlier in the other study, we did find that uh, overall practitioners think that um, evidence-based practice and research are important. But again, um, then there's a definite need for um, um, improving the skills to understanding what this research means. And so that's the step you were alluding to earlier, is how do I move from evidence to practice. How do I use this? How do I apply this to my patients? And and that's what the guideline initiatives tries to do is a lot of the groundwork being done, you know, from the guidelines and look at recommendation and try to synthesize and simplify the messages so that those makes hopefully more sense to clinicians. But um, always, any type of information need to be tailored to that specific patient within the context of the practice. This is typically a private practice. Uh, patients have some disability; um, they only have pain, but they also come in with comorbidities. They also have other chronic disease. We know uh, when they present with chronic back or neck pain, and so these need to be considered also in the equation. But it's I think that probably one of the suggestions I would make is the clinicians go step by step. Don't try to swallow a guideline overnight and apply all the 15 recommendations. I think that would be a large task and probably difficult to achieve. But rather, try to use the, um, you know, every week, um, learn one new recommendation and and test it. Try it in practice and see whether this small change in the way of addressing a patient needs makes a positive outcome. And that should hopefully reinforce, um, you know, the use of this information and uh, always consult with patients. There are choices for patients to be made sometimes. The information is there. The quality tells us that, you know, you can do A or you can do B. And, and, and if a patient prefers B, option B, uh, then we know that based on the preference, patients are likely to have better response. And so, Involving the patient and the equation and the decision-making process is also very important.
0: Uh, very good, very good. I wonder, I really want to explore this um, idea about how, as practitioners, we can change our behavior. And that leads me to another paper that you published. Uh, and this was from Implementation Science in 2015, February. And it was about fast-tracking the design of theory-based um knowledge translation interventions through a consensus process. So can you guide us through that paper um, and and what you found with that?
1: What we did here is we first interviewed chiropractors across Canada, uh, field practitioners as well as some of the leaders in the profession, asking them about a very specific topic, which is uh, management of neck pain disorders. Uh, what they thought about the guideline that was produced back in 2014, and what challenges they would um, see in trying to implement this and use this in practice. And this was really informative. We had um, another study um, I had done through my PhD, uh, also interviews with CAP actors in Canada and the US using the same framework that is called the Theoretical Domain Framework. And it helps us understand ways of people reporting their um, answers, if you like, on, for example, well, um, formal training. My training at CMCC really influenced my trajectory and how I make decisions about patient care. Or my colleagues or patients might be influencing the way I make decisions. If patients request an X-ray, I tend to give in. I, I, I'm not sure I have the skills, for example, to communicate and tell them. Well, you know, in this instance, maybe we can wait uh, and just start treatment. And if it doesn't improve within a couple of weeks, then we can think about this again. And so it's all about uh, the facilitators, but also the bearers in using the guidelines. And and based on the information that we re- gathered through the uh, multiple interviews, and we used another framework that helps. To in looking at the types of strategies or interventions that can be effective to address the barriers that we uh, learned during those interviews. And so we came up with an intervention uh, that was actually multifaceted. It means looking at several level of strategies to be able to try to improve on the practice of chiropractic within the management of neck pain specifically. And so we had um, various um, areas of um you know, or strategies within that some were electronic, so online education, webinar series, for instance, that were developed, clinical vignettes, which tends to be fun and, and where practitioners can test their knowledge. We also add videos uh, to underpin the uh, brief action planning, so ways of communicating with patients giving them uh, um, hopefully answers to what is really important to them so that they can actually come up with a plan, a goal and a plan that they will be able to apply if I prescribe exercise well okay but is this reasonable for the patient? Is this something the patient really wants and desire at this very moment and if not well okay ask permission to ask again maybe in a couple of weeks and so this um, whole strategy that we call a KT intervention was then pilot-tested across Canada. We have another paper that was published on the protocol and we just completed the study, and that's looking at the feasibility of implementing these type of strategy within a chiropractic setting in Canada. And, and I have to say that um, as much as it was a, a fun study, it was really challenging because we need to recruit clinicians for those type of studies who in turn will accept to um, provide patient with information where patients can make a decision to also enter the study and that they can complete the different questionnaires. So we look at whether not only does our intervention influence the way clinicians make decisions, but also importantly, does it influence patient health? which really is the bottom line when we do uh, implementation science type of studies. And so what we've learned is there's, um, as opposed perhaps to some northern European countries that are more used to participate in research, this is challenging in Canada. And so learning from these uh, challenges in conducting these type of studies, we're going to be launching soon another study in Quebec uh, in the francophone part and looking at similar outcomes, uh, but Learning from um, you know those those, uh, different things we we've um, uh, we came across during the first pilot study and making sure that we hopefully can address those to increase the recruitment or sample size and uh, both of clinicians and patients.
0: Wow, really good stuff! It sounds like a a lot of um, excellent studies coming out, and and I really understand and appreciate uh, some of the issues that you've come across in trying to recruit not only chiropractors but also patients get them involved uh, learn from them uh, so that we can best uh, facilitate these relationships in the future what what i'm just curious what are uh, some ways that uh, we've already talked about many ways actually clinical vignettes and getting chiropractors to introduce things uh, slowly maybe take one concept and introduce it to, uh, into practice, see how it goes, um, webinar series, um, other videos. Um, what what are some other things when you just think about everything that um, you've been learning about and, and the research that you've done, what are some tips that you could give chiropractors, I guess in general, that uh, to try to move them from where they are now to being more I guess, evidence-based or or just, I don't even know if I want to say evidence-based, just looking at the evidence and trying to implement some of that.
1: I'd say... Um- have a discussion with opinion leaders and best practice collaborators. We've uh, went through a formal process um, in 2014, where we ask our leaders in the profession, so those that are, um, you know, chairs and president of professional associations, regulatory boards, people on the executive committees, who they would recommend in their profession um, as people to go to. So I mean, Practitioners, field practitioners, they're well-known, respected for their knowledge, people that they would trust, in other words, if they had a conversation about a complex case. And after nominating through this 10-member committee that met three times and identifying first 18 and eventually 22 opinion leaders, two to three per province in Canada, um we uh, had a training session where people participated in and and uh, you know we, we brought them together and and asked you know well what do you need from us to help you um help and assist other practitioners that might come to you and ask, well, what does this information mean? And what does this recommendation mean? How do I implement this? And and I'm so thrilled that these people have accepted to play with us in this big sandbox. And, and then we went through another process, and asked to ask Canadian compactors, well, who would you like to go through? So in the first instance, it was leaders in, in a survey that was administered to them in a second second instance uh, last year it was uh, for practitioners themselves and, and 500 chiropractors provided names of over 1,000 chiropractors they thought that could be people they would go to for information. That's huge. That's enormous. And out of those, um, we were able to invite an additional 110 CAP actors across Canada who now are labeled as best practice collaborators and people that We'll work with the opinion leaders and trying to get our practitioners to have a discussion and and together I think it will probably make more sense if, if they have a complex case they want to discuss this with look at the evidence and then compare their um, answers perhaps or strategies on what they would do for a specific patient in a specific case so that's one example where I think cap actors instead of because as you know 50% of our profession are in isolated practice and they don't have this opportunity often to be able to communicate with other colleagues other than at continuing education conferences that only occurs perhaps once or twice a year. So we're hoping that this will become a very important and long-term strategy. Another one is a practice-based research network we um, launched in 2014. We currently have seven local practice-based research networks across Canada. Essentially what these are is it's led by one of the researcher that holds a position similar to mine in each of the provinces and there are clinicians and decision makers and leaders that are part of this group where they meet on a regular basis and address questions that are important to clinicians and the researchers function is to try to help get the information or actually conduct the research with them and so if this is a feasible question to answer here's the methods to do that and those practices actually become informant that means that you know that they're already in tune with the information, they get the information or access to the information, and they involve their patients in different research projects. The second um, objective of the Practice-Based Research Network is to help implement those guidelines. So this actually becomes like a laboratory setting where we can pilot test new strategies and see if this works in this micro environment, if you will, And then if it does, this gives us a thumbs up that we can actually implement this wide scale within the profession. And so those are two very interesting initiatives that are ongoing now in Canada. Uh, There are some that are, um, I believe, um, available, a similar initiative in Europe, in chiropractic as well as in the U.S., with Cheryl Hawk, for instance. And, And I think those are just wonderful opportunities for clinicians to get involved. And it's not, you know, they're not conducting the research, but they're part The research they're actually part of formulating the important question that they would like to address and the researchers there to help out in um, building the research project and completing this so it's a win-win for everyone really
0: absolutely Um, really exciting that uh chiropractors in canada can can call on one of these practice-based experts um, is uh, if the chiropractors there go to the CCGI website, can they find a, a listing of these people they can contact?
1: or, they can, indeed. Um, we have the name of all of these opinion leaders and best practice collaborators under um, one of the tabs there that is for practitioners. It's quite easy to navigate. The feedback we've received on the website are really excellent. This is work in progress, of course. So any of the audience here that uh, think of a paper or something really important that we should also include in the website, by all means, please uh, contact us. There's a contact address and, of course, this will continue to evolve. But all this information is there for clinicians' um, benefit and their patients. It's also a section for decision makers and learning um, how to influence their own members uh, within professional associations and regulatory boards in learning more about this.
0: Great. So, Dr. Boussiere, any other ways uh, that we haven't discussed um uh, to help get this knowledge translation and behavior change to, to actually happen? Are, are there any other ways uh, that you can think of or does anything else come to mind?
1: Well, there's one example I'd like to give is um, try to now test these different strategies within the schools. Um, we're launching a study at CMCC in the fall and um, the, the study is quite interesting in that we're going to be teaching clinicians on learning how to influence their interns, the student of final year, in learning more about self-management strategies for them then to, when meeting patients uh, during clinical encounters, that they can actually provide the right information to those patients for them to make a decision. And so there's a chain of uh, reaction, if you'd like, or strategies that we're going to be testing. Uh, But first, we're going to be interviewing the people people in the faculty positions we're going to be interviewing students themselves the supervisory clinicians and the patients all of those individuals are going to be asked different types of questions similar to studies we talked about early today for to help us design the appropriate information the right way to deliver our strategy and and type of strategies this should be for this all to work and eventually improve patient health Um, obviously if we can influence the way students at an early stage make decisions, it's probably good habits they will take later on as practitioners. And so um, I'm really looking forward to this study and hoping that we can do similar type of work in other CAPEX schools in North America and in Europe. Um, And um, and so that's an example of an all this translation study within academic settings, which is quite particular in that, you know, it has very different um, setups and, and rules and ways of functioning, uh, but nonetheless, uh, taking good habits early is important for us as individual for lifestyles, and it's not different when we think of continuing education. And one question I ask students as a faculty member here since 2002 at UQTR and 2012 at McGill is, what are your plans once you're going to graduate? How are you going to keep up with the literature? And and so people think I'm I'm, I'm joking, but actually I'm not. They're at the peak of the knowledge when they graduate, um, but. We know it goes so quickly that they do need strategies. And so I think it's remaining curious, remaining open to uh, and challenge ourselves regularly and, and making our, forcing ourselves more or less to read one or two piece uh, every week of information that is credible. So knowing where to find the information is really important. That's the very first step and that's why we designed this website I talked about. But it's also then to, I think, discuss um, the the our thoughts and confront our beliefs with other colleagues and, and not just our profession but also other professions. People are it's a world that is evolving very rapidly and, and and I I know that chiropractors are very interested in doing a superb job overall and and but we just can do better and so um, it, it's about taking good habits I think early and and um, habits are hard to change so um, that's probably uh, some piece of advice I would, uh, I would recommend.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, I was just thinking back to the last couple of months of chiropractic college for myself and, And the first couple of months out from chiropractic college, and I thought, I'm, I'm never going to go back to school. (laughs) You know, I'm, I've already learned everything. And, uh, well, it wasn't long, it wasn't long after that I realized, wow, there's a whole lot more questions that I need to get answered. And, uh, so which leads me perfectly into the next question, uh, or next comment, which is that a goal of this podcast is to, motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or students who um, uh, wish to become scientists or researchers?
1: Well, perhaps consider joining some of those projects I've mentioned earlier. There there are many opportunities, of surveys are being administered in in different countries and opportunities to participate in interviews, for instance. So I think it's getting your feet wet as a participant, perhaps, initially. Um, And and then just like this this podcast, I think it's just wonderful that uh, people learn about the different research interests of those uh, involved in the profession. Um, and knock at the door. Don't be afraid of, of calling one of the researcher writing to them and asking them you know whether they they have um, um, a room for um, a new student. There, there are really many many opportunities um, in the research areas. I think we have important gaps in health economics, for example, uh, health administration, health politics. Um, not many many researchers are are, um, in these areas and and we need more researchers obviously in knowledge translation implementation sciences Um, so that there are many many areas that uh, in, in great need you know one of the study we did back in 2008 was looking at the research capacity in Canada and um, only 1% of researchers produce information for 99% of users that are the practitioners so this has to grow I'm pleased to say that the recent update of this uh, showed that this is growing but uh, we're, we're a bit under capacity we need more researchers so um, yeah, anyone who's interested perhaps start by participating in some research as a as, as maybe, you know, just, just at least answering those questionnaires that are being sent to you and then uh, contacting researchers and learning more about what they do and looking at the, their website within each of the academic institution. And if this is of interest, simply contact them and have a, a Skype discussion and find out whether this is a line of, of, research that is potentially of interest. Doing a master's degree is really wonderful. That's a great way to learn about this, getting tools and understanding how research is done. And if someone is really excited about this, well, then the next logical step is to move on to a PhD. Um, And and so there's lots of room there for um, uh, bright researchers and and, uh, people that will take over our positions.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because we we definitely need them to take over for us at some point, and just join the ranks and and uh, help promote the profession, get evidence that we so desperately need uh, to do all, all types of practice. And uh, I think the the future looks good and really good. And and you know, with researchers such as yourself and and all of the other great chiropractic researchers, as you said. Uh, you know with the one study that 1% are feeding the rest of the 99 i'd sure love to see that change and uh, of course it is changing but uh, i'd love to see it change in a, a really big way uh, as dr hartfickson said uh, a few podcasts ago um so let's uh let's you know if you're a chiropractor or a student uh, dr andre had just amazing advice there so please uh Please do that. Contact any, any researcher that you might have an interest in, in working with or getting more information. This is how we're going to grow our research capacity, and amongst other ways. But uh, um, Dr. Andre, can you, uh, can you give us any concluding remarks, anything we didn't talk about yet that you'd like to share with anyone? <laughs>
1: Yeah, perhaps one, and um, that's about the some of the misconceptions around what guidelines are for. And, and um, maybe one way to remember is that guidelines are tools, they are not rules. It's not prescriptive, it's there really to help clinicians make better decisions based on the best available information at the time I make a decision. So people should not be concerned about those. They shouldn't be worried about those. It's not something that's going to, you know, that is going to be imposed upon them. It's really there as a tool to help them just make the best decision for their patients at the time they're making this. That does mean then that new information will come out in the near future, and I need to keep abreast of the information. So, knowing where to find the information, what is good information, and trust that I can trust um, with my patients is really the name of the game, I think. And and um, yeah, so, so this is perhaps one key message because uh, I've been into this for a while now, and I still get a lot of concerns I can feel a lot of concerns from clinicians about you know research being something scary evidence being something scary or guidelines being prescription but it's not it's really this is the best information we can find is synthesized and um, and hopefully applicable to clinical practice, and then people have to make a decision for this particular patient. Does it make sense? Is it relevant? And if so, well, then that's the best option, and that's the way to go. If not, okay, then perhaps the clinical experience is more important in this instance and the patient preference and values.
0: Perfect. Tools and not rules. Tools but not rules. I love that. That's… Uh that's a really good way to look at it. So Dr. Andre, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It was just a fantastic discussion. I really think this is going to help a lot of practitioners out there. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. It's just wonderful to be here.